our text on this Palm Sunday. This most complex Sunday. As we hear from the living God in his word is will be taken from Luke the 19th chapter in verses 28 to 44. That is the text that Stephen read at the opening of our service if you want to turn there in your bulletin or in your Bibles. Luke chapter 19 verses 28 to 44. The triumphal entry. except that it wasn't a triumphal entry. Not as the Romans practiced it. There were no military trappings. There were no trophies of war. No captives. No white horse. None of the things associated with triumphal processions. How strange a contrast... One commentator writes, How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time, no wall broken down for entry. This time, no garlanded hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. You see, to the knowledgeable Jew, The entry into Jerusalem is called triumphal because it was, as we'll see, unmistakably messianic. But to a Roman soldier, it it might initially have meant nothing at all. Merely one more incomprehensible local activity because Jesus had come as a king but not like any other king who ever lived. Palm Sunday is this day when we consider Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly life. Now in Luke's Gospel, we would have been on this road to Jerusalem since chapter 9 where Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So for 10 chapters, Jesus is found in some 35 different locations, teaching, doing miracles, always knowing that his journey was time to arrive in Jerusalem at Passover to die as the Lamb of God. And so this text is the end of that road. As Luke now brings us into a scene that Jesus himself orchestrated for his entrance to the city. This is a scene with joy, but it's complex. The triumphal entry is full of great insight. 
but also great error. The acclamation was right. It's meaning, precisely true. Messiah, son of David, fulfillment of God's promises. Here he comes. But what they were likely thinking would be the result. He'll finally get rid of Pilate. He'll sit on his throne. The Romans will fall back. We'll have our land. But it seems like many in the crowd would have been thinking, that's not right. Because Jesus isn't a warlike Messiah who will put Israel now on equal military footing with her oppressor, who will wage victorious battle against the enemy. He comes to deliver all humanity, not just Israel, from an even more deadly enemy. Those along the roadside coming out from the city to meet Jesus and his band of disciples and throwing down their cloaks to welcome a king, their shouting would change in a few days. From Hosanna to the Son of David to crucify him. Crucify him. Because they will not welcome this king. They will not be guided in the way of peace. I want you to see that Jesus is in control of this scene. That Jesus orchestrates his entrance. There's three times here in Luke that the language is, is used of Jesus drawing near, drawing nearer, coming nearer. It's in verses 29, 37, and 41 in this passage. And it's a signal to us that Jesus is the one coming closer and closer to Jerusalem and to the temple where he knows he must go and where, as we saw last week, he'll then assume all authority to preach, entering immediately into conflict with the religious authorities of the day. Now, prior to... Prior to this passage in Luke's Gospel, Jesus had been at Jericho, at the Dead Sea. And it's not that it's 15 miles of a vertical direction, but it's a 15-mile road you have to take from the Dead Sea to get up to Jerusalem. Halfway on this 15-mile winding road, you get to sea level with still a sizable mountain left to climb. And so we read in verse 28 of our text, when he had said this, and that, that is referring to this parable of the coming kingdom, which appears earlier in Luke 19, Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it's Passover. Everybody's going up to Jerusalem. It would be safe to assume that Jesus is in a large crowd here, that expectations are likely running high. For three years, Jesus has banished illness, done miracles, taught like no other person who's ever lived. A few weeks before, he'd raised from the dead a well-known man by the name of Lazarus in Bethany, east of Jerusalem. 
crowd around Jesus is big. Some are his disciples. Some are pilgrims swept up in this as they're going to the city. Some are people who are coming out from the city as well. All the while, the religious leaders are consorting as to how they might kill him because, as the other Gospels inform us, many were believing in him. There is great tension in the holy city. So up Jesus comes amidst the crowds who are hoping he'll display now messianic power while he knows he's headed to the cross. that there could be no glory without that. He had, in fact, told his disciples all of that just a little bit ago in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, Luke 18, 31, See, we are going up to Jerusalem And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But the twelve don't get it. Because they can't get it. Luke 18, verse 34, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Jerusalem had to be the place. It's where the sacrifices were made. It's where the altar was because it's where the temple was. It's the place where God met his people, the place of atonement. Jesus is clear about what's waiting for him there. He comes to die. But this was not understood. So, until now, Jesus had never allowed this kind of public display that we get now on this day of his entry to Jerusalem. This kind of display Jesus had never allowed. The events would then have escalated too quickly But now it's Monday. Probably this was Monday. And he has to die on Friday. So he sets it up. Verse 29 of our passage. When he drew near. That's the first of the three times that that wording of Jesus drawing near is used. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say to this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying its colt, its owners said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their garments on the colt, they set Jesus upon it, and as he rode along, 
they spread their garments on the road. Now Bethpage is near Bethany. They're near one another, about two miles east of Jerusalem. Bethany's the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And between Bethany and Bethpage, two miles east, and Jerusalem, directly opposite the Temple Mount, of course, is the Mount of Olives. So that the two villages here are on the east side of the Mount of Olives, meaning you can't see Jerusalem from there because they're below the crown of the hill. And from Bethany, Jesus sends two disciples to Bethpage to procure an unridden donkey colt that they obtain by simply saying, the Lord needs it. And the disciples, I imagine, must have been initially puzzled. But it becomes clear that this was all carefully planned. The timing was precise. The mode of entry was carefully chosen. You see, we have to consider what many in the crowd would suddenly think when they're confronted with this scene. Jesus, who had been, who'd trekked over hill and dale all over Israel for several years, wouldn't suddenly ride any kind of animal for the last kilometer or two because he's now just too tired to walk in through the gate. It's a symbolic action. Of course it is. As Tom Wright puts it, his riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives, across Kidron, and up to the Temple Mount, spoke more powerfully than words could have done of a royal claim. Luke doesn't say so explicitly, but over 500 years earlier, Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on the foal of a donkey. It's the same term that's used here by Luke for the animal that Jesus selects. The reference is Zechariah 9, verse 9. Many of you know it. Shout aloud, aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Jesus knew that. And he knew exactly which donkey and which colt and where it was and how to acquire it. To Roman soldiers, the scene would have been opaque. To the knowledgeable Jewish crowd, it was clear. Jesus was identifying himself as their king, their messiah. It's a bit of a footnote, but it's interesting to note that the donkey was regarded as a royal animal before and during King David's reign. That it was only after David that Hebrew kings and warriors switched to horses. The donkey then being considered undignified, but this means that the selection of the donkey as prophesied 
would show both of these things, would show that though this was the announcement of Jesus' kingship, it was a humble procession, signifying both his position as king and his character as a servant. And the other activities that Luke describes here complete the picture for us. The ancient custom of spreading one's garments before a king, indicating submission, a symbolic way of placing yourself under the feet of the king. So that as one after another threw their cloaks on the ground, Jesus is honored as the king. So now verse 37 of Luke 19 as he was now drawing near. There's the second of the three times that that wording is used, as he is now drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now as Jesus and his entourage would have come over the hill from Bethany, east of Jerusalem, crowning the Mount of Olives, that's when Jerusalem comes into view. And I imagine, I just imagine it's at that moment that great cheers ring out from the mountain when they first catch a glimpse of the city and the multitude begins praising God for all the miracles they'd seen, the mighty works. By one touch, he'd made leprosy vanish. He'd opened blind eyes. He'd made the deaf hear and the lame walk. He'd turned water to wine. Stormy seas calmed in a moment. Demons obeyed his word. The dead raised to life. They'd seen these things. They knew he was the one. This is the Christ who cannot be stopped. Power goes out from this king. And so they repeat, quoting from Psalm 118, verse 26, the line. I imagine they say it over and over again. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Yahweh, God Almighty. And then sounding not a little like the angels when they had spoken to the shepherds. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. No one can fail to see the magnitude of this claim. Psalm 118 is a royal psalm. It was a psalm many scholars believe that was recited on the annual celebration of the enthronement of the king. In the first century context, there are some who suggest this was not meant to be read and enacted until the Messiah came, which is exactly the point, isn't it? 
This is a psalm to the king as he approached the temple. And here now is the one. The one who under the authority of the Lord was coming. We know as the king of kings. The one we know of whom Isaiah, the same Isaiah we read from earlier who says of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is the Christ they see. That's what they were saying. The Messiah, the King is here. The other Gospels tell us then about the palm branches the symbol representing the nationalistic desire of Israel coming from the Maccabean revolts, the desire to be delivered. The other Gospels tell us about the crowd chanting Hosanna, that anticipatory cry that literally meant save, save us. The people viewed Jesus as their deliverer. And he was. But not in the way they thought. The Pharisees are weighing in here in verse 39. Teacher, rebuke your disciples, they say. (laughs) Rebuke your disciples. They do not accept this. They hated the Romans as well, but they hadn't seen anything of God in what Jesus had done. They regarded this messianic clamor of his disciples as shocking, perhaps dangerous. (laughs) Jesus didn't fit their categories. But then Jesus' answer to this stunning I tell you, he said, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Who does Jesus think he is? That creation itself would rejoice at his coming. So now, you have this picture. The donkey bearing the royal yet humble Jesus here amidst the crowds and the adoration and the swelling throngs around him as he nears the city. And there's the cloaks and there's the palms and there's all these messianic overtones. It's the scene that Jesus has orchestrated. And no one expects what comes next. Verse 41. And when he drew near, and there's that third use of that wording as Jesus is zeroing in on what he's come for. And as he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As the panorama of Jerusalem came into view, Jesus begins to weep. But these are not the quiet tears that Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus, which is the only other time the Gospels speak of Jesus crying. This time, it's a loud and deep 
lamentation. The language has the connotation of sobbing, of heaving. I don't know how you read these words of Jesus, but I believe they were with great struggle that he could even get them out. He is wrenched in sorrow, is the idea. Jesus stops and looks down across the Kidron Valley at Jerusalem, the locust, the symbol of so much, so much that he loved, so much of the good of Israel, and of all the manner of blasphemy and idolatry and violence that had characterized so much of her history. And there the stunned multitude would hear the Savior wail as Jesus strains to get out the words that he utters over the city that he knows will reject him. These aren't tears of weakness. They're not tears shed because Jesus is frustrated that his plans didn't work. They're tears that reveal the heart of a Savior King facing the rejection of his covenant people. A rejection he knows must happen. For as John says it, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And the Lord prophetically sees the unrepentant city reduced to rubble. It would be exactly what happened in A.D. year 70. When the city was destroyed by the Romans, Josephus records that the destruction of Jerusalem was so complete, quote, that no one who would come there in the future would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. The city stormed, the temple burned, the people slaughtered. In Jesus' words come the collective weight of all the prophets' warnings to Zion through the ages, here now summarized in terms reminiscent of all the prophets that had preceded him. But all these things are hidden from their eyes, as they have been hidden for so long. And so Jesus weeps. The sovereign God weeps. With sorrow over these hearts that miss their day. That miss what it is that would bring peace. Namely, repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he weeps in the face of their rejection and because of he knows what will follow. Biblically, of course, through it all, the plan of God for salvation would be realized in this. As Christ crucified would be resurrected from the dead. So that Acts chapter 13 verse 27 says... For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, here, which are read every Sabbath, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers fulfilled them by condemning him. 
the people did, in fact, miss their day of visitation. That is an Old Testament phrase that refers to the coming of God. That's who visits. It's when God draws near to his people, whether it's for rescue or for judgment. Would that you even knew, Jesus said, if you only knew the things that make for peace. Repentance. Believing the message of the kingdom. He preached this from the very beginning. How to come into the kingdom through faith in him. Repentance from sin. You go back to chapter 4 of Luke. We were there a few weeks ago. And, and then all the way through, Jesus offers again and again and again the good news of peace. But they're blind in unbelief. And now I think Luke is making as clear as he can that God is visiting them in Jesus Christ. But that God's visitation in this moment would end in their judgment because they would not receive him. And so God Palm Sunday is a hard day to get right. Even though Jesus here engages in very provocative, orchestrated street theater, if I may, by entering Jerusalem on a donkey to symbolize clearly his royal dignity as their Messiah, as their earthly king. Luke's gone beyond that. Luke understands this to be a divine visitation. And to a divine visitation, if the people don't respond with welcome, they will face judgment. And you might, if you want to, in the next few days, before Monday, between now and Monday Thursday, you could re read Luke chapter 19, verse 45, through to the end of chapter 21. That, that would be the whole section of Jesus now in Jerusalem from his entrance to just before the Passover. And if you read that section in these next few days, you can't miss at least one thing. That judgment is coming. Some of the hardest texts of Luke are there. We're all accountable for the day of visitation in our lives, brothers and sisters. The inhabitants of Jerusalem and the temple's own tenants don't recognize Jesus for who he is. They don't know what makes for peace. They're indifferent, they're hostile, they're resistant. And my prayer is that none of you are that. Because this morning, God is visiting you. He's visiting you through his word that I'm proclaiming this very moment. He'll visit you through the coming to communion and the presence of the Spirit at the Lord's table. Have you recognized the time of your opportunity? Do you know on this day, on 
even this day, the things that make for peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.